Today on Ag News Daily. AI was another issue I mentioned. So when you think AI and pork, you often think artificial insemination. But here I'm talking about artificial intelligence. And so, you know, cameras and sensors in barns that can, you know, watch movements of animals. Good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday episode of the Ag News Daily Podcast. It's Ashton Carr joined by Dawson Schmidt. Dawson, how are you doing today? I'm not doing too bad, Ashton. We finally had some rain this morning, so that was great news. Kind of like leaving the house, coming to work. Uh, it didn't last long, so unfortunately the hot weather kind of, you know, wiped that away. But hopefully, you know, it's going to help here the next couple of days. I heard that some parts of the Midwest did get rain today, but unfortunately, I don't think that it's going to be enough to really help farmers out. I don't know what the forecast is for the rest of the Midwest, but hopefully we'll get an, a weather update here in the future. I think we need one since a lot of folks have uh, ended planting and are getting ready to uh, just kind of watch and see the uh, crop emerge and wait until harvest season. But Dawson, other than that, don't have a whole lot of other weather updates, just knowing that it is real hot right now. But one thing that I do have an update on is some things from the EPA. Three U.S. Congresswomen and at least a dozen of their colleagues are concerned about reports that the Biden administration is considering options to exempt oil refiners of their obligations under the Clear Air Act's renewable fuel standard. Representatives Cindy Axney of Iowa, Sherry Bustos of Illinois, Angie Craig of Minnesota, along with Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, have sent a letter to the EPA and National Economic Council saying that any such exemptions are unjustified. They urge EPA's swift action on a proposed rule for the 2021 and 22 renewable volume obligations with strong blending targets. And we saw some support from this, especially from Growth Energy CEO Emily Score, who has been on the podcast to talk about the ethanol industry with us before, praised the letter and their united front. She says that reported handouts to oil companies looking to avoid their obligations would be a complete reversal of the Biden administration's promises to support clean energy jobs and the integrity of the renewable fuel standard. So we'll see, you know, what happens thus far um, or what happens next, I I should say. But uh, that's really all I have talking about that thus far. Yeah, that's really interesting is what kind of what a lot of the renewable fuels organizations as well as the EPA, they said they're really going to crack down on these oil exemptions. And, you know, with President Trump, it seemed like he was really lax on exemptions. And so when the Biden administration took over, you know, they were really happy and to hear that they may be focused more on climate and keeping up with uh, the current blending regulations. And now it just seems like in order to bail out these oil refineries that the Biden administration might start to get a little lax as well. I definitely see your point there, Dawson. But uh, what news do you have to kick things off for us today? Well, Ashton, one thing I am watching today is kind of a recent develop of a story I covered back in April when when I was on the podcast for the first time about the $4 billion that is uh, sent to go to uh, minority farmers from the USDA in regards to the COVID-19 pandemic and trying to provide relief to those kind of farmers. Now, recently, a federal judge had blocked the 
had actually blocked those payments from coming out and due to considering the lawsuits that came out from white farmers and different groups that that were claiming that they were being discriminated against by not being included inside of the program and also saying that it was unconstitutional unconstitutional uh, with racial favoritism. Now we have te- now we have USDA Secretary Tom Vilsack actually speaking out and saying that this is this should not be something that is blocked by by these groups and by the federal courts due to trying to trying to give back to socially disadvantaged farmers that have been discriminated discriminated against for the past century and now and now we're just trying to see that the USDA is really trying to put, push for these payments to go out in the latest initiative for um kind of righting the wrong i guess that has gone through gone on through the USDA and so that has just been the re- most recent thing. And it's I'm really unsure on if we're going to see that these claims will be dropped or if there's just going to have to be an overall ruling by the federal courts to actually either let those payments go forward or just drop them completely. Yeah, Dawson, that's definitely been something that we have been keeping our eyes out on for some time now and going to have to be one that we continuously watch because I think that... Uh, There has definitely been some pushback when it comes to that relief for those minority or marginalized groups of farmers. And another thing that we've been trying to keep an eye out on as well is the labor force, especially in the world of agriculture. It's something that we talked about during World Pork Expo that we will feature later on in the show sometime. But for right now, I have a little bit of an update as ag and farm worker groups met with key senators along with Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack in a bid to jumpstart congressional action on ag labor reform. The meeting that included Senators Mike Bennett and Mike Crapo came nearly three months after the House passed the Farm Workforce Modernization Act, which would provide a path to legal status for existing workers while expanding the H-2A visa program and reforming H-2A wage rates. The senators are Senate leaders for this issue, but they have yet to introduce their version of the House bill. Vilsack told the groups that USDA will do what it can to help with ag labor reform, but Republicans have resisted moving any immigration reform bills while they say the border is in crisis because of illegal immigration. I think when we're talking about ag labor in particular, immigration is something that we also kind of have to take into consideration because a lot of those who do work in, you know, our our fields and in our factories are migrant workers. So these things kind of do go hand in hand. And I mean, I see more of the border crisis just because I'm down here in Texas. Of course, we do border Mexico. So I see a little bit more, I think, of that conversation than than maybe most do because it's definitely an issue here in Texas. But going to have to continue just watching out for these things and what's going on with legislation. And like I said, we talked about this last week at World Pork Expo and Delaney and I have something in the works to talk more about ag labor reform and what's going on in the facets of agriculture when it comes to trucking and transportation, when it comes to field work, um, when it comes to meat packing plants. So hopefully we can dive into this a little bit more, but that's just kind of the update I have today. Well, Ashton, that's definitely interesting and kind of going off of the meatpacking portion of your, of what you said, um, 
a federal Minnesota judge has actually overruled a USDA directive that actually that would slow down slaughter rates in the U.S. Now, originally, I think it was in 1995, the USDA came out with a directive that allowed for elevated slaughter rates and kind of helped with uh, pork production and getting and really getting the product to consumers. Now, recently, the federal courts have shot that directive down due to uh safety concerns and making sure that workers are not being exploited. And so then recently the USDA actually came out and said that they have no say over this. And unfortunately that the plants will actually, the the plants will have to abide by the new ruling. Now, a lot of people are concerned about this and you and I actually had a chance to uh, listen to Jen Sorensen with the NPPC when we actually attended Pork Expo uh, kind of, when we were there, they were talking about still lobbying against that potential rule. And unfortunately, I think they, that rule just automatically got shut down. And a lot of people are concerned about having a back, backlog of pork supplies or rather just pigs on the farm, kind of like what we saw last year and just making sure or just not being able to bring their pigs to market, which I don't want to get down a slippery slope, but could, you know, potentially, uh, end up with larger hogs and more tonnage when those hogs actually do go to market. And according to a recent study by the, by an Iowa State uh, economist, the reduction to pork line speeds would actually hurt the smaller packers the most. And they would just have, have not, they just will not have the capacity to operate at normal harvest levels per week. So one way for the packers to actually keep in line with the current slaughter rates they're doing is to potentially go into the weekend with slaughtering. And essentially, we're probably going to have maybe some more premiums that the farmers are going to have to pay in order for that to happen. So it's mostly, a, it seems like it's mostly attack on produce, tax on producers that is might, that might actually cause issues to this. Well, Dawson, I just have one more story before we get into markets for today. And it's talking about yet another strike going on in Argentina as Argentine port unions say that they are going to go on a 24-hour strike over vaccine access. Now, workers, including tugboat captains and customs officers, have held similar work stoppages recently as Argentina grains powerhouses get hit by a second wave of COVID-19 cases. A coalition of nine Argentine port worker unions are going to go into this nationwide 24-hour strike starting at midnight tonight to press for vaccines against coronavirus because of this second wave. So far, almost 88,000 people have died of COVID-19 in Argentina, but the country's vaccination program has had a reportedly slow rollout. And these port workers are kind of frustrated, it seems like, that they're not being put as an essential you know, workforce or anything like that to have access to these vaccines. So I'm not sure if this will go on longer. And I mean, they've already had multiple strikes going on, especially, you know, there in Argentina in particular. So going to be interesting to see what happens if they are going to get these vaccines, if they're going to take this strike even further, going to be one that we watch for sure. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess I haven't heard of anything uh, recently going on there. I just knew that a while ago, it sounded like they did strike a deal with trying to get workers vaccinated, actually putting them on uh, 
on the essential worker list and making them eligible, but that must not have come to fruition. I guess not, Dawson, but uh, I'm on a lot of news. Do you have anything else for us before we chat markets here? I do not. All righty. Well, uh, markets are down big today. Really just red across the screen here. Things aren't looking too good. So I'm just going to go ahead and uh, bite the bullet and jump right into it with the corn markets. July corn down 40 cents to close at 633 flat. The September down 40 cents to close at 543 and a half. The December also down 40 cents to close at 532 and a half. Going over into the Soybean markets. Soybeans are trading their expanded limit right now and are down over a dollar here in the July contract, down a dollar 18 and three quarter cents to close at 1329 and three quarters. The August also down over a dollar at a dollar and seven cents to close at 12 and 95. The November down 90 and a half cents to close at 12 at 52 and three quarters. Here in the wheat pits, the July down 23 and three quarter cents to close at 639. The September down 22 and three quarter cents to close at 643. And the December down 22 and a quarter cent to close at 649 and three quarters. Heading over into livestock, really not much better because hogs are also trading their expanded limits and livestock pulled lower today, mostly due to grains being so low. And hopefully we will have to put in a bottom here, but starting things off in live cattle, starting off in the August contract down 383 to close at 121 and 10 cents. The October down to close at 126.58. In feeder cattle, August contract down 30 cents to close at 157.40. The October down 62.5 cents to close at $160.70. And in lean hogs, the July contract down $4.50 to close at $111. The August contract also down $4.50 to close at $107.20. And the October down $4.10 to close at $86.92 and a half. Rounding out our markets with the class three dairy milk futures. The June contract down 21 cents to close at $16.76. The August down 25 cents to close at $17.44. And with that, Dawson, I'm going to kick it over to our conversation actually with Dr. Jason Lusk that we had at World Pork Expo talking about productivity and performance on your operation. We are joined here with Jason Lusk, who is an ag economist and lecturer at Purdue Purdue University. Hey, Dawson. Nice to be here with you. So, Jason, can you just kind of give us a little bit about your background, what it it is you do, what it is you talk about, and kind of, you know, what you're trying to convey to the public? Sure. I mean, in my day job, I'm a head of an agricultural economics department, which means I have about 100 employees (laughs) that I'm trying to coordinate. So teaching uh, about 500 students at Purdue is the main thing that we do. And and then the the research and extension um, uh, outputs that we try to do from that department. My own research program is mainly focused on consumer food demand issues. What are consumers willing to pay for? Uh, How are they being affected by food policies? Are they better off or worse off today than they were in the past? But then also trying to connect that to the farm. What does it mean for the farm sector when we have a food policy change or food retail price changes? 
So in your presentation earlier, you were talking about how we're producing more with less. So why don't you just kind of compare what productivity looks like right now compared to where we were 20, 30 years ago? This is a really positive story for most of agriculture. So the little thought experiment I, I gave was let's imagine we wanted to enjoy the same amount of pork that we actually got to consume and enjoy last year, but we wanted to do that using 1990s technology. How many more pigs would we need? And the answer is we need about 26 million more pigs than we actually have today. And that's really the story of sustainability. We saved 26 million pigs, but still got to enjoy all that pork because somehow we figured out a way to produce that pork more effectively, more efficiently. We have better genetics, better housing, better feed, better know-how. Um, better, you know, all the rest, that entrepreneurship and innovation is what enable us to, to bring that out. And I think that's a really positive story of sustainability. So when you say sustainability, what exactly do you mean? I think everyone has their own definition. So why don't we just go from there? There are a lot of definitions floating out there, but I think core to any definition of sustainability in my mind has to be productivity. And, and productivity is really the measurement of how much output are you getting uh, relative to the amount of inputs that you're putting into that. And so can you produce the same or more output using fewer inputs, less land, less water, uh, fewer animals, fewer greenhouse gas emissions? That If you can make improvements in, on that measure of productivity, to me, that's really the cornerstone of sustainability. And how do you think that our, our producers should measure productivity? Is there any kind of key way that they can do this, or is it just kind of up to your own operation? Sure. You know, a crude way to do it would be yield. So, uh, you know, I think crop, crop producers are, are very familiar with the you know bush, bushels per acre. Uh, the problem with that measure is, of course, you can get more yields by adding some inputs, like, say, uh, fertilizer or water. So uh, what you really want to do is take your output and divide it by all the inputs that you use. So that, uh, But that's a complicated thing to do. But, but uh, you know, on the animal side of things, it might be the amount of pounds produced per animal, for example, would be another partial measure of productivity. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that also, of course, is related to profitability as well. So I want to take things back to how the industry is really advancing and how productivity is increasing. And you talked a little bit about gene editing. So from a genetic standpoint, what are we looking at here? Yeah, what well, I just mentioned some of the the technologies that are emerging that could improve productivity. Gene editing is certainly one, and I think it, there's there's been some research done in pork. And this is the ability to really you know move genes more efficient, efficiently than we have been able to do in the past through traditional breeding practices. Now, whether we'll have regulation or consumer acceptance, it may limit what that market looks like. It remains to be seen, but I think it is an opportunity. But it's not the only technology that's out there. I, I mentioned the fact that you know many of us have, have been vaccinated against COVID using an entirely new kinds of technology to create a vaccine. Scene. Um, what what kinds of opportunities are there in the pork industry uh, to use this technology to create vaccines or or uh, help you know to help animal health issues? AI was another issue I mentioned. So when you think AI and pork, you often think artificial insemination. But here I'm talking about artificial intelligence. And so you know cameras and sensors in barns that can you know, watch movements of animals and, and can potentially detect when something is wrong before we can even see it with our eye. Is there a disease issue, a stress issue that may be going on? Uh, do we need more feed, less feed at this time? I think all that data coupled with models to be able to make uh, these projections is something I think that's really interesting to keep an eye out for the future. Jason, you're really big on innovation within agriculture. And so when many people think about innovation, it's more about what people can use that in the general public and what it so it almost gets surpassed when it comes to farmers thinking of new things agronomists thinking of new things and 
the public just kind of ignores that and the prices don't really change based on that as far as a shift in trends. Um, is there a way that we can kind of push towards that in trying to get people to realize that agriculture is doing its best to improve sustainability, improve productivity and overall, you know, kind of feed the world and it's kind of, it would seem to be, it would seem to be a public trend, but it just does not seem to be that way. It's a, it's a great question. I mean, that's what you just outlined is the story of biotechnology in, in large part. Farmers, you know, rapidly adopted these technologies, but because consumers couldn't really see the benefit, there was a lot of opposition there. Uh, in some ways, the, the technology itself is the solution. So you think about, um, uh, biotechnology, you know, uh, the non-browning apple, for example, the technology that delivers something to the consumer that they couldn't have before. Now, all of a sudden, it's not so problematic. Again, I just mentioned the fact that we all got uh, vaccines from a technology that's uh, very much a biotechnology. Consumers, there's obviously some aversion, but when we can see the benefits, it really matters a lot more. So that doesn't mean that we can not innovate on the farm. Um, and I think getting back to this conversation about sustainability, to the extent that retailers, processors start adopting sustainability metrics. Hey, you got to, you know, show a reduction in, you know, in this amount of, say, carbon output or this reduction in water use. How are you going to do that? And, and how are you going to measure that? And I think the way you do that is through innovation. And that's something that kind of innovation can both help the bottom line, but it can also help meet some of these sustainability metrics. So when we're talking about increasing productivity, I think it's important to note, and you talked about this, the quality and how that's going to be affected by these new implementations. So what do we need to take into mind here? Yeah, I, I, I mentioned that in my talk because I think, you know, when you talk about efficiency and productivity, you might just think, let's just produce the cheapest thing possible. But uh, if you do that, people may not want to eat it. So you got to think about uh, marbling, taste, quality. And, and indeed, that's, you know, we think about some of the competition from, say, plant-based you know, alternatives, how, how you compete. It's got to be on taste. I mean, it's one of the uh, things consumers tell us that they find attractive about conventional meat products is that it's a product they, they, they like the taste of. So you can't sacrifice quality to achieve, you know, ne to necessarily, uh, you know, achieve some of these, these efficiency and productivity measures. And I mean, we as a pork industry and as a, a, a natural protein industry in general, we're, we're constantly advancing, but our competitors are as well. And you touch on the, these meat analogs, these meat replacements, if you will. So how are we going to be able to compete as the industry or not the industry, but our consumers are getting a little bit more onto the meat analog side of things? Yeah. I mean, I think it is natural to view these as a competitive threat and say, what can we do to stop them? But, um, you know, that's just, the nature of the world that we live in, and, and it's better for the consumer, for the consumer to have more options available to them. Um, and so how, how can you compete in that, that landscape? Uh, one, what, you know, some of our data suggests that it, it remains important to be cost competitive. So changes in the price of pork have a way bigger impact on the amount of pork you consume than the price of the, of this analog does. So, so that, that relative price competitiveness is important. And then I think, you know, one interesting dynamic is you know, the meat case in the grocery store, it, you know, even the, over the course of the past two years, there's new products there we haven't seen before, new brands, you know, new, you know, things we haven't seen. And how's that going to change the consumer's expectation of what's in there? It may open up the door for more innovation, more branding opportunities uh, in the animal protein space, more even blended kind of opportunities, maybe blend traditional meat products with some plant-based alternatives. Um, and maybe even new product offerings. If, if people are seeing plant-based patties, well, why can't we take pork and you know, have, you know, instead of chicken nuggets, pork nuggets or what have you. I mean, so as meat consumers are reconceptualizing what meat is, it may open up doors 
for uh, say pork that it hasn't had before. Something that really stuck out to me in your talk is that when looking at trend lines, we see real meat being counted at the same elevated levels and plant-based meat is really at the same lower levels. But in, in media, a lot we're seeing that there's a large push for plant-based, but it seems to be more of a psychological argument than more of an economical logical or argument. Can you kind of talk on that? Yeah. So, you know, the data you're referring to suggests that a small share of consumers um, are, are choosing these plant-based alternatives at the moment. So in some ways, you might think the media coverage is outpacing the reality on the ground. Um, I think that's true. At the same time, I think uh, if you look at data on sales, I mean, sales of plant-based alternatives are increasingly, are increasing. Most of the time, this is expressed in percentage growth. So you can get a large percentage growth if you start from a really small base. So that's one of the reasons that percentage growth uh, is is so strong. So you know, how is it the case that it's uh, you know percentage growth is really high, even though it's a, still a very small share of the market? I think one of the things that's happening is there's just there's just new varieties coming out, so new brands, new companies entering this space. So there are more options available to consumers, and their prices have been coming down. So these you know have in the past have been priced at some pretty significant price premiums, and they're starting you know as they gain, you know, size and scale, they're starting to bring their prices down. That's drawing some consumers into that market. So, you know, I think the big question, you know, the the 25,000 or probably million or billion dollar question is, you know, what size of the market 10, 15 years from now will these plant-based alternatives comprise? And that's really hard to know. But, you know, I don't think it's crazy to think we may have a world that's, you know, 15 years from now where it's 15 to 20% of the market. Now, market shares can be a little deceptive because there are some people um, that buy these plant-based alternatives that wouldn't have bought much, you know, traditional meat products to begin with. So in a way, these are just, you know, new entrants into a, a new market space that wouldn't have been there before. But, you know, you know, our, our estimates suggest that, yes, some of it is just the overall size of the what's considered the meat market growing. But there's some substitution that's happening as well. Well, again, folks, that is Dr. Jason Lusk of Purdue. He's also a Red Raider. Just got to say that one more time. But Dr. Lusk, thank you so much for joining us and talking about productivity on the pig farm. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks again there to Dr. Jason Lusk for chatting with us. He did a keynote speech at one of the luncheons that Dawson and I were able to attend. And, you know, he did his undergrad at Texas Tech. So I did have to make him take a picture with me with our guns up. Folks, don't know if you saw that. And if you didn't, well, you should be following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram because that's where it was posted. And we post on all platforms at Ag News Daily. And with that, Dawson, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.